Hello, listeners. In this special episode, we bring you a panel discussion hosted by Economic Impact Catalyst on March 24th, 2022. The conversation features trailblazers' advancements in expanding access to capital for small businesses. And as part of our 2022 Catalyst Network discussion series, the interview picks up with Breaking Down Barriers host David Ponraj moderating. The esteemed panel you'll be hearing from includes Chanel Scott Contreras, Executive Director of Prosperous in Detroit, Michigan, Aaron Siebert, Managing Director of Social Investment Practice at Kresge Foundation, and Steve Wanta, Co-Founder and CEO of Just in Austin, Texas. We hope you enjoy this inspiring discussion. But first, I want to kind of uh, pose the, the, the broad, really broad question to each of you to, um, to share your thoughts on. Uh, so this is the, the fundamental problem. Today, uh, no matter who you go to as a funder, uh, other than in really small pockets, there's the very traditional outlook on, on your credit worthiness and your repayability as the primary factors of funding. And a lot of small businesses don't start at that point. They don't have a friends and family round. They don't have uh, you know, great credit that they can just go borrow from a bank, et cetera. But we don't seem to be head addressing that head on. A lot of funding, even the SBA, like I've talked to three or four different lenders on the 7A loan. The primary criteria is profitability. How can the, the, some of the primary vehicles of funding, even through our government that understands the problem, be things like you know, profitability, which a lot of first, second, third year businesses are going to struggle to be able to prove, right? So Chanel, I'll start with you and, and ask you know, more broadly, why have we not evolved and why, is this, why are we still stuck so backward in when we talk about you know, capital, which is over 50% of all small businesses, that's their primary need? Yeah, absolutely. We see this as a persisting problem and Prosperous is designed to disrupt that process. Uh, Steve mentioned earlier, um, I think getting to yes or saying yes, and that has become a mantra of Prosperous as well, um, that it is our obligation and our responsibility to understand what we can do as lenders, as technical assistance providers to um, adjust our processes, understand what, I know, how to adjust our practices uh, in order to help people become successful given their circumstances today. Um, and what we think is that affordable, flexible, and patient capital is certainly a part of that equation. And why don't we see this everywhere? Because it costs a lot of money. Um, it, you know, it won't be profitable if we, if we, um, and, and unfortunately, right, uh, this is just um, many organizations are seeking at a minimum sustainability, and, and I should actually say self-sufficiency. So the amount of work they put into their lending practice and providing capital being offset by what they earn. And, and frankly, when we look, we look at the landscape um, of small business ownership and entrepreneurship in low to moderate income communities, we know that we're working in contexts of low income, uh, low or no credit, um, lack of access to, to friends and family capital to invest and seed capital to invest. Um, and this stems from generations of inequity. So we can't expect as practitioners and providers of capital as lenders that we will then somehow magically earn a return that will offset all of the existing uh, contexts that we're working within. And so it behooves us to figure out new ways to offer capital, investing in all the missing pieces, which are education opportunities, expert trusted advice and relationships with entrepreneurs and service providers and business coaches, and then still having very flexible um, practices as folks are repaying their loans. Um, and until we're, um, you know, like disrupting systems across the country to offer these things, we will continue to see a lack of access to capital. Um, but I'm really excited about the way Kresge Foundation, uh, Adjust and Prosperous and many organizations are, um, you know, like leading the charge to offer new tools, products and vehicles and, you know, all the technical assistance and, and missing opportunities to make better 
um, connections and capital offerings to the entrepreneurs who, frankly, have the talent, have the drive and skill and know-how and, and are, you know, like there's an existing culture of entrepreneurship. Like we're not teaching people anything. We're just bridging the gap between the resources that people haven't had access to. Yeah, so I'm going to come back to that second, the last point you made in the next round, which is this idea of what are the markers for alternate access, right? Like uh, other, if you don't, if you, if you throw away uh, ancient words like creditworthiness and think about new other ways of like, how do you prove repayability in other ways? I want to come back to that. But let me bring Aaron into the conversation. So you all do a lot of also kind of market studies to understand what the need is on the ground. We were part of that, one of those in Detroit last year. Uh, what are you seeing from a foundation's perspective and what do you think is the role of the foundations uh, across the board in trying to helping with this problem? Yeah, I, um, I mean, it's not a secret. We all know that the issue, particularly as it affects BIPOC entrepreneurs, is that lack of sort of startup and growth equity. Um, and there's not a great solution to that in a lot of these places. Um, you know, I think it sort of depends on what your aptitude is and that your infrastructure internally your foundation capital can and should be the absolutely most risk tolerant, most flexible, most concessionary um, money that that can be deployed into an entrepreneurial ecosystem. The problem is that it's got very, very, very limited scale to it. So, you know, that that is a challenge. And, and there is, you know, I try to tell people all the time, you know, with the exception of sort of new money into the sector, there is no marginal excess of philanthropic dollar. Every dollar is spent every single year. You can sort of argue about, you know, how much more should be spent sort of beyond 5% threshold, which I'm quite happy to talk about that. But, you know, you're always making a choice, right? You do one thing, you're going you're gonna to have a thousand things that you're not going to do. So you got to get to the sort of scale of, of the solution. You know, and I, because of the way that we work, right, we're always trying to push that sort of right tool, right job. And because we've had that lack of sort of startup equity and, and growth equity in the space, we have largely solved it through debt funds. And I, this is not a dig on Prosperous or anybody else who's doing the debt. But I'm also a person who believes that, that not everybody is meant for debt. Debt is not a good tool in every circumstance. We default to it because it's relatively easy to box it in. We've got sort of collateral agreements. The federal government mostly deploys money through, um, through debt instruments into this sector. But like what is really needed is equity like tools. So, you know, I'm quite interested in the philanthropic space trying to pilot because again, you know, we've got the most unconstrained capital you could possibly imagine to pilot new kinds of tools that are true equity substitutes as opposed to trying to like, you know, we're small business lenders, so we're a hammer, everything's a nail, everything needs a loan. Um, you know, I think things like non-dilutive equity arrangements, um, you know, different forms of receivables factoring that take a revenue share base to them. Um, I think it would be interesting to pilot. I've only seen it done one time where you have an equity to debt conversion vehicle, which is, you know, typically goes, always goes the other way. Um, but, but trying to find ways to give entrepreneurs the sort of scalable equity that they need in a non-extractive fashion. So you don't, you know, take them out of the knees the moment they start to get profitable, because what you're always going to try to do in this space, I think philanthropy has done an amazing job of helping the sector get kind of the startup capital, ecosystem support, technical assistance, et cetera. Don knows this very well. What drives me nuts is then we, we oftentimes are building a bridge to nowhere. You can get off the ground, and you can like get yourself maybe to a lifestyle job. And then the moment you need scalable growth equity, because you're not quite ready for debt yet, there are no solutions um, and that are, are very few. And that is quite frustrating to me. So I think like that's the space where philanthropy needs to lean in a little harder. Yeah. And so I'm going to follow up with a question after we have Steve jump in. So with Chanel, we're going to talk about this alternate access and what, what are those markers for alternate access. But then with you, uh, I want to come back to what does the infrastructure look like? Because if you're going to be able to do things like factoring, et cetera, that needs a lot of infrastructure in that, you know, who's going to process all of this? Who's going to be the, the gatekeeper, right? So how do we come back to address those? So we'll come back, but I want to bring Steve into the conversation. Steve, you know, you've traveled the world, uh, you've done a lot of work, and then you've landed on this just model. Can you tell a little bit more about kind of how you are helping uh, through always saying yes first? Yeah, and and I, I mean I appreciate the comment from Aaron about you know defaulting to debt and 
the so I fell out of love with my global microfinance for that reason. It was um, really focused on money and the transaction of money. I was sold on this idea because of this romantic idea that we can end poverty. It's, it's really beautiful. And I think as you look at it, what I came to, around to as uh, head of a global foundation was that really the, the beautiful part about it is the relationship that's formed with the most excluded people in the world. That's really special. But if you don't add new, more, and better, the best we'll probably get is more um, income smoothing. It'll be less painful, which isn't bad, but it's not why I want to dedicate the rest of my life to a little less painful. So I fell actually back in love with microcredit since being an operator because it's, it's, I'm going to use a different word, Aaron. It's not debt. It's, it's actually opportunity. And this is the most profound thing that probably captures the human essence. I've seen plenty of women around the world cry the first time they get money. What's more beautiful than that is that they do not cry the second time. It is this access to opportunity, which is really profound and it is not good enough. So the point on, um, I think what's so important is this idea of continuum of opportunities. So organizations have to be very intentional what that actually means. So I can tell you a little bit how we see it. Scale, I think, is really important. We need to be talking more about scale in the United States. We need to be bringing in more innovation that can take into account economics because we're talking an economics problem. So we've got to figure out economics as well. So we have to wear multiple hats as we think about scale. And scale, if it's not transformational, who cares? You know, I think this is why we're in this work. Um, so I, we shouldn't follow the path of global microfinance in the United States, but let's not lose what awesome lessons there were from this global movement, which is the foundation of impact investment. So I think there's a lot there for us. I'll just stop at, on the point of, I, I think there's so much more innovation that could happen that's gonna take the, the sort of philanthropy. Um, and for us, what is really, back to the drawing board of finding people. So this on-ramp to build relationship first, credit is a really powerful tool because it's really, it's really clear, benefit for them. And then it then goes to this point of, well, what is our role as an organization? So we see that to Chanel's point of stability and then starting to unlock other doors to true transformational wealth creating opportunities, whether that's personal home ownership or access to products to help them really grow their business. So we've actually started a partner with formal lenders, Lyft Fund, a lot of people probably know, created a formal partnership that says, we're happy to graduate our clients that want loans more than $10,000. So we've made over $10 million of small loans um, with a 99% repayment rate with a modified version of group lending more designed for the realities in the United States, where community is more fractured, where time is more of a problem. So we've taken a lot of those lessons and um, reimagine them while preserving why you can give money to people without ever checking credit scores or doing any sort of formal underwriting as we know it in the United States. So I'm happy to talk more about that. I mean, I appreciate everybody's comments here and I, and I probably see it just a little bit different. And, and now as a father, I think, try to think in more of and versus right and wrong. So um, this third way, I hope we can, we can try and get to. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd love to come back to, you know, what you've seen that you're doing differently, uh, because that's really why we are here today, just to kind of learn from uh, people like you who are innovating in this space. Uh, so I would definitely want to build on that thought. So Steve, we'll come back to you um, and would love to hear more about this. I, I want to introduce this idea. So there's two more topics I want to bring up. First is this idea of alternate uh, measures of knowing uh, how you, who you can lend to. And then I also want to talk about the role of technical assistance, uh, because what we found uh, is that when you can combine technical assistance, not like going to school, but technical assistance that is like just in time uh, to capital, capital goes a lot farther. And we found very good models happening uh, on the fringes with community colleges and others that have satellite locations working. So I want to talk about that. But Chanel, I want to come back to you because one of the ideas that we've been tossing around is if you can build a profile of an entrepreneur through things like, which by the way, 
you know, the people that lead this space, you should see, of course, entrepreneurs will always be the ones who solve this problem. And some of the people that are solving this problem now, not in the most equitable way, but you can see they're already thinking in these lines is online lenders. If you follow the path of how online lenders lend, you will get some idea on how they're also pushing the, the boundaries on, of, on innovation. One of the things that they've started doing is saying, if you give us access to your tools on how you run your business, we'll give you credit at a lot faster rate with very few barriers. For example, if you give us access to QuickBooks, we will just tell you right now how much money we can give you with no other checks. All we need is an API to your QuickBooks account and we'll tell you how much money and it actually works in practice, right? Because they're pushing the boundary. So we're thinking if we take that one step farther and make it more equitable and say, there are some markers that prove the repayability and all the other things better than credit worthiness, right? So uh, Chanel, I want to ask you, like in terms of the ways in which you look at uh, who gets loans, et cetera, right? Like, are there things that you're innovating on that, that you're learning in the field uh, that you can share with us that could be better markers than credit worthiness and friends and family round and all these generational things that instantly become barriers to underrepresented entrepreneurs. Sure. And I think perhaps somewhat unfortunately, there is no, you know, secret sauce here. I think relationships are the thing and are essential. Um, and relationships that allow practitioners to collaborate with entrepreneurs to be thought partners and coaches in a sense of providing advice, but allowing the entrepreneur to lead and starting that relationship as early as possible and adjusting our tools. And Aaron, I agree. I don't think debt um, is the right tool for everyone. And that's why at Prosper Us, we offer micro grants. We've offered uh, much larger grants um, in addition to um, loans as tools, but right-sizing those tools based on the need of the entrepreneur and what they're looking to accomplish. So at Prosper Us, the top of our funnel is our training program. People are learning about entrepreneurship. They're popping up and proving concept. And at that point, they might look for a credit builder loan um, while taking on a, what we call a step-up loan. So a loan of up to $5,000, or maybe it's up to 10,000 to get started. Um, and we make loans of up to 50,000, but the point is understanding the entrepreneur and the business well enough to help the entrepreneur right-size the amount of capital and then the right or the appropriate practical assistance or technical assistance tools that are going to accompany that capital to position them for success. And then a, we're like being in relationship, knowing that it will evolve over time and seeing the capital as a, a staircase, right? We can start with $5,000 as that person's proving concept and going to um, you know, pop-up events, um, but that next loan could be 15 or 20 or 50 and being flexible enough to, to build the relationship. So to have the capacity as organizations to build those relationships over time and to be also be patient in terms of how we look at our outcomes and evaluation um, because what we've learned at Prosperous is sometimes from training to uh, the most hands-on technical assistance, that's an 18-month um, window for entrepreneurs to come back and then even more time before they're seeking capital. So I think it's about a long-term comprehensive approach that builds a staircase of both technical assistance and capital um, that can evolve over time with each entrepreneur. So... Uh, Aaron, you talked about doing pilots. Tell us a little bit more about, you know, what are some ideas you want to test out? And, and then if we want to deploy and create scale, what does the, the infrastructure look like? And who is going to help set up the infrastructure to actually make this happen? Um, let me try to start there first. Um, you know, so I think if, if we in philanthropy are more focused on product innovation and scalability, then I think it sort of takes you down two twin paths, which is, you know, typically we run into this across a lot of different sectors. There are the folks in the sector who do the work every day that are very, very close to it, right? And they are like in the trees, um, but they have the thing that they do and they like spend every day trying to keep doing that thing as well as they can do. 
it is oftentimes in my you know, limited experience, uh, more difficult to convince those people to innovate because they got a business model, they got a payroll, they got like, they got a thing that they're doing every day. They built a staffing model around it. Um, and so, so doing new things can be challenging because there's always limited capacity to do so. Um, but they've got the most knowledge, right? Like they're super close to the problem. On the other side of the fence are folks who, you know, probably are well, well positioned to do product level innovation, but may not necessarily be uh, close to the issue. And so this, this happens a lot in, if we take it from a U.S. sort of um, perspective, which I think is you know, very different from sort of international microfinance, I mean, the U.S. is the most affluent country to ever exist, right? Like we do not have a lack of capital problem in this country. We have so much money. Uh, the problem is the way that we're allocating it and the distribution channels through which we allocate that capital. We got major bias uh, and sort of like legacy problems baked into that system. So I think in philanthropy in particular, you're always going to have to play both sides of the fence. You have to worry about things like how do we get the SBA to actually do things that help like real true entrepreneurs, not people who are already rich who just want to get like better financing. Um, like, how do we get them to reach down deeper and particularly into communities that have been discriminated against from a capital allocation perspective and to do things differently? And then how do we, I'll just sort of speak generically, not about anybody in particular, especially on the phone. How do you get a traditional CDFI type small business lender, you know, cranking out five to $50,000 small business loans to think about a different kind of risk profile, a different kind of product set? They're different approaches, but you kind of have to do them both at the same time. At least I never think it's a great idea to put all your eggs in one basket, uh, because ultimately, if you got the sort of CDFI type small lenders to innovate on a product set to take more equity like risk, you're going to run out of philanthropic capital. There's got to be something more scalable to them or you end up with the balance sheet problem that we always get into, particularly with SBA. Uh, similarly, on the sort of like larger capital allocator side, or let's call it well-resourced um, organizations, you got to give them something of scale to get into, right? Like you're not going to go to Citibank and be like, guys, we've got the best $150,000 opportunity for you, right? Like that's not the business that they are in. They're in the find something you can make a nickel at and do it a billion times. So like you, you kind of have to work at both angles. And from an infrastructure perspective, I mean, like this is why we find organizations like this, like NEI in Detroit, et cetera, because it takes like a thousand flowers blooming, particularly when you're at this sort of scale to deploy capital effectively. There's no like the SBA is not going to solve this problem for us, right? It's going to take a whole fabric of, uh, you know, to use Don's words, practical experience providers, equity-like financing, debt scale financing, um, you know, capital market solutions, all sort of working together, you know, kind of in the way that I would say that we've actually seen in this country more in the real estate sector and like particularly in the single family housing, right? Like it also has its massive discriminatory problems, but, but there is a whole ecosystem there that is really, really good at moving a ton of money, right? Sort of up through a capital markets execution and beyond the SBA products, we don't really have that here. Um, you know, and, and if you look at sort of where banks have gone moving, so like their small business lending at this point looks a lot like low middle market lending, right? I mean, like it's, it's, it's very little scalable capital through large money centered commercial banks. So, you know, that's, I don't have any like silver bullet answers, but I think I'm, I'm just gonna state the obvious for the crowd. That's how I, I think we have to operate. Thank you. Uh, Steve, I'll bring you also into the conversation here. Uh, and uh, let's also, I'd like to, uh, I think you might have already seen this in, in setting up just in that the incentive problem. And uh, what are the incentives for capital providers to play in this space? And, you know, is that the lack of incentives to innovate? Why aren't we seeing more innovation in this space? Um, well, I'll uh, touch on a couple things quickly re related to alternative underwriting. So one of the things, because we've looked at this problem from an infrastructure um, product innovation standpoint through the lens of scale, so wanting to, if, if we do create something that's meaningful for one person, we have a responsibility to try to serve tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. That's been always how we've, we've started just. 
Um, so I love what Prosper Us is doing and Chanel. And what we think Just can do is create a new and interesting on-ramp that complements that flexible capital and other innovation around those that have uh, growth businesses. 42% of our clients are single moms. Not that that means they're not a growth-focused entrepreneur, but it does potentially signal someone that has a different lived experience that needs a different type of support. So we want to be able to say yes to her and we want to say yes to the person that wants to open their brick and mortar business. Eventually, um, our first $750 is absolutely not a silver bullet, but it is a really great tool to trust. So the green, some of the green flags that we're looking for, some of the things we're doing is trying to identify green flags for commitment, which we think we can do at scale. So there are alternative organizations we're talking to. Dallas's largest charter school network for high-performing nonprofit, 100% um, graduation kind of rates. Um, Uplift is the name of it. Their families are sending their kids to that school because they've been promised that they will graduate and go to college. For us, that's an amazing green flag. And we will say yes 100% of the time to those families. We've had to create a couple of different products to make it more flexible. So including a personal loan, because some of our, our clients don't necessarily want to invest in a business at this moment, but um, it gives us an opportunity to be in relationship with people. So we think that's super important. The only way we can serve tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands is with technology. So what I sort of internalized as an operator is that microcredit is pretty simple. It's not, it's pretty straightforward. It's, and it's really hard. Um, it, is in fact a process. If you check boxes, you get money. Um, and it's made it more straightforward in what we have to go build. So we've automated the underwriting process. Um, is people fill up the form and they show up, boxes are literally ticked inside of our system that allows us to automate the lending process. When they renew their loan, there's policies that give them a new stair step. Stair step increases. So um, we think there's really important work across the country that can be done and more innovation as we truly collaborate um, beyond just a referral. So um, we're, we're, um, we're in belief that we'll get be a lot smarter together. So we're excited to start to demonstrate that just as an organization can scale across Texas um, as a direct lending provider to demonstrate a new on-ramp for lift funds of the world, other CDFIs, we are also a CDFI, to say that, hey, we can deploy tens of millions of dollars of little nickels um, as, as part of simply demonstrating that we have to be more creative. And it's gonna take philanthropic investment because our first loan is maximum $750. It costs the client $15. So $765 they pay us back. Business terms, that is referred to as a terrible business. In trust terms, it's referred to as a great first step. So it's the next and the next and the next and the next. Um, and it's really beautiful to see what has happened to some of our clients around practical assistance. We want to be able to provide something for the cleaning lady and also for the person that runs a food business that's meaningful. So we're really careful not to introduce a technical assistance program that tells them they also have to be accountants. So we say, hey, we should all plan, do, and reflect. And then if someone wants to go deeper into their ability to manage their business, we have simple things like goal setting, uh, both in English and Spanish, uh, that is digitally enabled to remind them what their goal is. I mean, we live all of the experience as an organization first before we ask our clients to do it. So very much eat our own dog food. Uh, we borrow our own money. Um, so we... We think uh, if it's good enough for us or if it's good enough for them, it must be good enough for us too. Um, so, it, you know, a lot there. I think the practical assistance is really beautiful um, in the sense of non-prescriptive and partnership is paramount in my mind to innovation and also making sure that um, people get access to what they really need, whether that's equity or larger loans or, you know, mentorship or whatever it might be. Um, we need to we have to play a role in making that process easier. What about if they want something that's not the $750 or one of those 
things that are automated. Like let's say somebody wants $50,000 and they don't, uh, they don't fit into the traditional application process for a CDFI. Are there things you're doing to help with that? Yeah, um, really just through partnership. So, you know, we know that what we do for the most part doesn't exist in the US. So we need to be focused and do that really, really well. So someone has $50,000 loan or $50,000 need, that would be a referral to Lyft Fund, happily say, hey, they'll underwrite you based on your credit score, your collateral. They've created a new aunt, the new 10 question um, survey that we have access to. So we could help them um, pre-qualify just like a mortgage lender, um, this time for a small business loan. So that's an exciting example of a partnership that allows them to focus on what they're good at, the cash flow, lending. Uh, we don't want to be good at that. Um, so I think it's partnership is the simple answer. Okay, I'll ask the three of you one really strange question I have in my mind that's been burning around capital, but then I want to close with the technical assistance or the practical assistance piece. So this is a question that I've had. So government and the role of government in, in providing capital. So they say, you know, well, we can't just give freely money to everyone. We have to know people that can pay us back, right? But then they invest a lot of money in reducing crime and uh, affordable housing and childcare. All of those things also matter. But they don't look at entrepreneurship as an investment to create new ideas. They do, but at the very high end, like you go to NASA or you go to SBIR funding or NSF, they have there the, the play money where you can play with the house money. But at the lower levels, right? Like if you're not really strong on deliver or repayability, then they don't think it's a good use of their money. But in my mind, I'm saying, if you're going to be also creating, uh, you know, putting money back into the community to fix uh, problems uh, in the community, why can't we look at entrepreneurship as also a way to just give free money, if you will? And again, that's why this idea might seem, you know, absurd. But I want to ask you that question in that giving somebody $50,000, knowing that they're going to spend that money in the local ecosystem, and that creates a multiplier effect. They buy from the local lawyer and the local accountant and the money stays in that circular economy. Isn't that a better spend of that 50,000 than then saying, well, now this person uh, is going to apply for unemployment and then we have to pay them anyway through unemployment or we have to pay them uh, through providing other mechanisms to, to help them out. Shouldn't entrepreneurship also have the lens of sometimes free money, but that has better chances of paying back? I have not heard of anybody talking about this. So uh, Chanel, I'll start with you and just throw it all to you to see if this is really an absurd idea. I don't think it's absurd. And I think that I have seen um, as a result of the pandemic, more appetite from municipal through federal government, as well as other stakeholders um, to provide free money to people in pursuit of their business goals. Uh, one thing that we were able to do in Detroit, thanks to the foundation community, was offset uh, principal and interest payments to you know, the portfolio companies of many different lenders um, for six months during the pandemic. We've also seen an incredible amount of grant opportunities. In fact, uh, Prosper Us uh, managed a program called, we call the Anchor Business Project was a pilot program with the support of Kresge Foundation and New Economy Initiative to provide uh, $25,000 grants to uh, businesses that we were considering anchor businesses in neighborhoods. So applying this idea of the anchor business that we might see in a shopping mall and understanding how that's different and what those differences are in, uh, in cities, in retail corridors in cities, uh, and investing in those businesses with these large grants and also offering, um, not requiring, but offering technical assistance as a additional support above and beyond that grant. Um, and what we've found are that these businesses are, you know, there's a ripple effect when you invest in those businesses that they invest in employee training, um, new systems, beautification or like uh, exterior um, improvements. And that has um, a benefit to not just that business and that business owner, but of course the broader community and other businesses in the community. And so I think there is a bit of a tide change happening 
Um, the question is, will it persist? Um, will it be sustainable after the pandemic? Um, but I am very um, hopeful and optimistic about the programs that we see coming from um, the state of Michigan, Labor and Economic Opportunity um, Department, MEDC, as well as the programs happening at the county and city level as well. Um, I see, you know, a potential for continuing to innovate programs to make sure the needs of business owners are met, including the opportunity for equity capital. Yep. So we're both involved with the with the anchor program and excited for yeah the pilot results on how you know the the lift to the neighborhood and also we're working with the MEDC. We just finished a statewide study with them on understanding how they're going to deploy ARPA funds and SSBCI dollars and working with them on the definition for micro business. Finally, we need a definition for micro business, right? Because when you say small business, you kind of are excluding micro businesses. Uh, so yeah. Uh, Aaron, let me uh, ask you this uh, question. And uh, like Chanel said, my biggest fear is that after COVID, it's all going to go away because we saw like a 53% jump in small business starts in during the pandemic. Like everybody, because there's money available, everybody's innovating, everybody's trying to create new ideas. What happens next? So I think you, know, you always want to think about public sector partnership, kind of think about what part of the public sector you're talking about. Um, and there's strong differences. I mean, you know, in our work, we, we tend to work in what are, I've never found a good way to talk about this, but they're, you know, effectively high poverty cities, right? So in high poverty cities, you have an, you have a, an overall access of capital problem. And that's sort of poverty mentality about that the pie is small and not getting any bigger. So we've got to make sure that like, we are very protectionist over the resources we have is a very difficult thing to overcome. And so like what works in a New York city, right? Which is a highly capital rich environment versus what works in Detroit or Memphis or New Orleans. I actually think those things have very little to do with each other. I'm like extraordinarily skeptical of the ability to export interventions in strong market growing cities into places that are not that. Um, I think they're just wholly different contexts. I also think it's pretty important to understand that in particularly in high poverty cities, but unfortunately in every city, the closer the ground that you get, the, the higher the sort of sensitivity and risk is to like compliance versus outcomes, right? And you, and you can track things like CDBG spending, home spending, other federal sources of dollars that are passed through states or local government. There are many, many cities across this country that functionally would rather not spend money at all than spend it on something that is risky that gets them in trouble from the federal or state government that they risk putting other capital at risk um, because of that um, sense of like gotcha mentality. And you know, you can see this uh, it primarily plays out in sort of blue cities, red states, where, you know, the sort of large populous urban center uh, is oftentimes in like, you know, outright warfare with the sort of larger um, state government. And so the gotcha mentality does not breed innovation or like outcomes tracking. It is, it is a compliance metric. Um, and so you are better to be 100% compliant than 95% compliant with a little bit of innovation. They're just not built to do that. I'm not saying that it's not possible, but it is oftentimes why you see very small scale programs run through intermediaries who are big enough to take on compliance risk on behalf of government. And that if something gets screwed up, they got to write a check and pay it back immediately. So that's just the reality of it. Um, I think as you move up the food chain, you've got more uh, opportunity for innovation. You know, the federal government has never been entirely um, consumed with its own compliance risk. Um, uh, you know, it, it does exist, but you know, that level of spending is so big, it's hard to be like, you know, that guy absconded with $10,000 in some random city someplace, right? Like that stuff doesn't usually hit the news. So I think there's more innovation possible at the federal and state level, but mostly about how can you get how can you take the shackles off of local government who is closest to the ground and knows their context and need? And that's that's where it really becomes about how flexible can you make the capital? I think the City of I Fund has actually done a pretty good job of this. We've seen some innovation. I think SSBCI in its second, third iteration has some 
uh, ability for innovation at the state level. It'd be interesting to see if people take advantage of that, but it's more of an enabling environment sort of context than it is about like trying to scale things up. I will say um, we have seen lots of innovation in the sort of pay for success models, mostly in health and in housing. Uh, you know, where you get like foundations and banks to put together money up front, do the thing, save the save the incarceration expense, save the TANF expenditure, save whatever the thing is. And then you go back to a government payer and say, look, we did this wonderful intervention. It saved you a bunch of money. Now you take us out effectively, right? And go do the thing that you have an evidence base for going forward. I'm sure it's happened, but I'll be honest with you. I don't remember seeing one around a pay for success, social impact bond, whatever you want to call it in the entrepreneurial space with a public sector payor. Love to see it if somebody's got it, but I have not seen it myself. So I think you know those kind of things are a little bit of a hack around the risk aversion. And I think finally, I'll just say, you know, I'm not gonna say anything people in this crowd don't already know. Funding programs from federal expenditures with a high compliance risk is probably the hardest thing to do. Funding programs from general fund operations from local governments, which again, in the cities that we work in are extremely constrained, but a little bit easier to do because they don't have the federal government or state government looking over their shoulder. But I think there's lots of opportunities in the general fund expenditures that are non-program based, which is functionally their procurement budgets, right? We all know this, right? There's governments spend a huge amount of money just running their own shows and there is a lot of work that can be done there to make those opportunities more accessible to the kind of people that we want to sort of grow these businesses. And then you figure out sort of between philanthropy, CDFI world, et cetera, how do you smooth out the frictions around like bonding requirements, you know, lines of credit for liquidity, um, you know, scaling technical capacity, factoring the receivable, whatever else it is to sort of basically you get them in the door on the procurement side, they can spend the money with a lot less oversight, uh, and then you figure out how you build the business behind that. that. That is where I actually think is like the most opportunity because I think it is the le least risk to local government and honestly the, less, the least visible, which sort of lowers their overall compliance um, apprehension. Yeah, that's a wonderful point. The, the challenges that we face in procurement is that they usually seven to eight month cycles where like, so you have to literally like set up an entity in the state. You have to jump over 50 hoops. By the time you're said and done, they have changed officers. And now the next person wants to go through, it's a nightmare, but yes, if, if you can- uh, But we are choosing that, right? We're ranking that choice. And oftentimes there are sort of state and federal procurement rules that sort of push down on it. But, you know, that is coming out of the age of government where it was effectively low cost adequate yeah. provider of service, right? That yeah. was the name of the game. And I will point out to everybody as I have been over the last couple of months, you know, the ARPA funding at the very least has an explicit demand that state and local governments show how they are pursuing equitable outcomes with the spending of their dollars, right? That is a mandate that has not happened before. So one of the things that I think I've said this to Treasury that cities and states ought to be measured against is show us not only what you were spending the money on as an equitable outcome, but who, who are you spending dollars through? What are the new channels of capital that you were funding dollars through that have sort of equitable outcomes built into them as a measure of success, which is a totally different analysis than low cost provider. So, you know, it is a moment for innovation. I'm not saying we're going to like turn the light switch overnight, but but that if you start thinking beyond low cost provider, you know, a, a whole vista of sort of opportunities for small businesses opens up. Yep. So we support uh, ARPA deployment in Atlanta, St. Paul, Minneapolis, Denver, et cetera. And we're starting to see that. Uh, it's a completely different way in which they're doing this. Steve, I'll let you in I'll, to also share your thoughts on this. David, it seems like it's a, it's a branding opportunity. You just change universal basic income to universal basic investment. And then, and all of a sudden you've got, you've got some money. Um, what I, so all I'll say is just from our perspective, the pandemic show shine really bright light on the fact that um, asset ownership is paramount, especially during the most dire of times. Um, small business is a good start, but there's vulnerability, especially with the community we serve. So we're really driving innovation around how we accelerate access to transformational wealth um, opportunities. So our big idea was, hey, just let them have them own our loan portfolio. And then if we can be really innovative and convert their ownership in 
in our loan portfolio into other productive assets, like the a down payment investment in their house. So we can start leveraging our balance sheet in really creative transformational ways. Then that investment starts compounding. So we think they should be rewarded for their hard work, their, their desire to see their community transformed. And, and that should be just blowing open doors to new, more and better opportunities. So I think what you're talking about is how do we create more chances for people to live their full potential um, create a better life for their kids, all the things that we all want. And it just, for so many reasons, it hasn't been equitable in this country. Um, and that's just unjust. So we're, we're eager to be a part of that solution. We'll have to bring you back on this for this topic of wealth creation, because what we found is that over the pandemic, the rich like double their wealth and the poor got poorer. So we can't even seem to be getting to the starting line on wealth creation. We keep like, yeah. not even getting to the starting point to actually yeah. do something about it, right? So that's probably the next uh, topic in the series is really like why entrepreneurship is really because of wealth creation, right? Like that's the, the entrepreneurship is a means to that end. Uh, so I'll just let you all close with one uh, closing thought. So Chanel, if you want to give us a closing thought on you know, where you're headed, uh, what's next for you and, and kind of help us wrap this discussion today. Absolutely. Um, thanks so much for having me. I think I'd leave um, this community of those who work to support entrepreneurs with just a simple thought that building relationships and understanding the needs of entrepreneurs, especially entrepreneurs working in low to moderate income communities and, and particularly entrepreneurs of color um, should see themselves reflected in the services that we offer. Uh, we can't understand the needs of communities without being of community. And so as we seek to innovate tools, disrupt systems that have been inequitable, let's think about bringing in the voices of those um, that we intend to serve. They should be practitioners in this work. Um, they have, just as they're innovating, this community is innovating in their businesses and their neighborhoods as leaders, they can also help lead our entrepreneurship ecosystems. Um, to, um, to also be equitable in how we reach economic equity together. Thank you. Erin? Uh, how about I go last? I've talked a lot. <laughs> like, <laughs> All right. Steve, why don't you go next? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I want to um, echo Chanel's comment, you know, what we done differently than traditional microcredit is turnover power to the community to decide. So rather than having credit officers, we have what we call just entrepreneur trust agents. And these are female entrepreneurs that want to improve their own lives and want to invest in their own businesses and they want to help their friends. They get to decide. And I think when we talk about wealth from an economic perspective, we have to talk about equity. And from economics, it really means ownership. And at the core of ownership is agency. So as much as I'm a white guy from Green Bay, Wisconsin, you know, I fundamentally believe the people that need to be deciding as to Chanel's point, the people that have been excluded. And I see my job fundamentally is getting out of the way, make sure systems are in place that work and that there is a whole bunch more in front um, of them for that transformational wealth building opportunities. We don't have the answers yet, but you know, I'm excited to spend maybe the rest of my life trying to figure that out. So um, it's, a, it's really not gonna happen without partnerships. It's not gonna happen without big thinkers and big investors. So wealth does not, is not created without money. So we've got to figure that piece out. And you know, it's only gonna be um, smart people committed to that cause that will will allow us to create new a new more just world. Thank you. So the, so we got to break the statement that to make money you already have to have money. <laughs> so uh, Aaron, I'll give you the final thought here. I'll be very brief. So I, I think you're absolutely right. The inequality thing. I mean, I having spent my entire life in the sector, not philanthropy, but sort of larger community development and economic development. I. I it's it's inequality and it's climate change 
And those are the two things that are gonna like ruin us, right? And they are both like mutually reinforcing in that way. And particularly from a US context, the inequality issue like has a global, like we are driving that in a lot of ways. And if we do not get our arms around how we recreate an economic ladder for people, I honestly think that like everything else that we are doing, which I think is you know good and reasonable, I'm happy we're doing it, is mostly a waste of time. Um, we, we just cannot live in a country of a few haves and a lot of have nots. And that's just not, it doesn't work. So I think that the, at least from the COVID crisis, moments of disruption, right? Like you never let a good crisis go unexploited. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think we've gone through a couple of crises. It is a great moment to be like very loud and very bold about upsetting the apple cart. Uh, and I think, you know, from my seat, we are looking for those places where we can invest capital that have a, a direct human impact that is very solid, B, the ability to help other organizations similarly situated access capital, even if we're not the ones that can provide it, and C, have a decent shot of making this sort of systems level change that, it, you know, we think is probably necessary. And this is really a time to not like color in between the lines. Like we, we are losing this battle against inequality really rapidly. Um, and and I'm, I'm not sure how much further we can go and not have a, a really um, dire impact on sort of the Western liberal world. So, um, you know, that's what keeps me up at night. I'm not like, <laughs> nobody's going to feel better after listening to me talk about this. I have a lot of anxiety. Well, it's an important conversation. And unless we start talking about this and highlighting this, we're not going to see change. There are wonderful people like you all and others that are starting to think about how do we create more equitable access. Uh, and so I'd like to thank you all for joining us today, sharing your time, your thoughts. This will be recorded and shared uh, much more widely. So thank you for that. I'd also like to thank Don Jones, who was instrumental in helping us write the white paper on alternate access to capital and helped also bring all of you together today. Uh, he's on the, uh, on, uh, in the audience. So thank you, Don. And then also thank you to Jackie, who helped uh, facilitate and put all of the, the wonderful things behind the scenes to make this happen. Uh, and, the, and then also to, the, to our attendees today, thank you for joining us. Uh, hope to talk to you all again very soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast about entrepreneurship-led economic development. Special thanks to our renowned guests for joining us. You can find show notes, more episodes, send us ideas, Subscribe to our newsletter on our website, economicimpactcatalyst.com. Breaking Down Barriers is a presentation of Economic Impact Catalyst and is produced by Jackie Dietrich and edited by Lauren Bernard. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Breaking Down Barriers, available for free wherever you listen to your podcasts.